we've really peeled back the curtain for all of our staff. And, you know, everyone has the opportunity to look at our contracts. And the reason that we do this, you know, one, it's part of that kind of project management guide of how, how something fits into a process, but it also lets people see the bucket of hours we have to actually do these tasks. And so it really helps hold people accountable, you know, when they know that if our contract on this job, you know, say is for $10,000 just to pick a round number, that means we can't spend an infinite amount of time on it and still be profitable as a company. And so I think it really helps kind of create the buy-in for these tools when we've created these processes, when we've created these tools for people to use, and then they use them and they see that, oh, you know, I hit that bucket of hours that I needed to hit. And that goes all the way back to the contract. And that goes back to you taking a leap of faith in me to kind of take these tools that you've created and, and try to use them as best as I can. Welcome everyone to Section Cut, our conference dedicated to the stories of leaders who are innovating on practice operations. What's up guys? My name is Nathan Malone and I am a product marketing manager here at Monograph. We have Adam Gale from Level Architecture and Interiors and he's gonna share with you some of the workflows and processes that has helped take Level from Wild West to well-oiled machine Welcome, Adam, to the Section Cut stage. Hey, Adam, how's it going? Hey, Nathan. Good, man. How are you? Doing well. So, Adam, as I understand it, your firm has been and remains in a little bit of a, a unique situation. Can you speak a little bit about Level and how that situation has presented some unique challenges and opportunities? Sure. Yeah. So, you know, as you said, we, we are in a bit of a unique situation in that we are part of a development company, and that's kind of a larger group of, of sister companies called concept companies. And we are, you know, we're the architecture wing of that group of companies. And so when Level was first started, it was really created to kind of support the efforts of the development company. And as we grew, it became apparent that we were able to operate as an independent um, third-party firm as well. And so a lot of our growth has been both to kind of fuel what the development group is doing, but also to kind of build this third-party firm. And so, you know, you asked, what, what are some of the, the challenges and, and opportunities that come along with that? Well, one of the opportunities is that with a, a development group partner, you kind of have a bit of a rocket booster strapped to your back in terms of a project pipeline. You know, work is coming in. We're not having to do a whole ton of marketing for those jobs because we're connected to that group. Although, you know, one of the challenges that comes with that is, is establishing that third-party identity. And so, we oftentimes get questions of, well, your group has a, a construction company attached to it. If, if we do, a, a, if we bid on a, a job coming from you guys, aren't they just going to get it? And the truth of the matter is most of the jobs we do third party, they don't even bid. So there's a lot of kind of establishing our own identity that had to happen. And another thing that comes with that is we're in a green, uh, in an office building right across a green from our partners. And so it's really convenient to walk across the street and be able to ask your owner, you know, if you've got a question but that door goes both ways and it's really convenient for them to walk across and ask you to do some things that maybe you wouldn't with another third party type of client. So it's been a bit of a learning experience, you know, how to make things work internally as well as externally. And I, I think one of the really the biggest challenges of that was coming up with a series of processes that could do just that. Yeah, no, and then let's talk about that. So you guys are kind of setting out on your own how would you characterize like the beginning of this journey when you know you first started to think about practice ops? Like where were you at? Where was what was yeah. the wild west? Paint that. Oh picture man, yeah. So it was the wild west. And to you know, to give you a little bit of background information, 
when I joined Level, I think I was maybe the, the eighth or ninth person. And so how we got from one to nine was two people who kind of started with the development group. And then as we started getting jobs, as we started taking on this third party work, in a series of about six months, we went from two people to eight or nine people. And so it's just kind of this rapid fire assimilation of talent and people and ideas. And, you know, when I came on board, I think the, one of the first things I asked is, all right, well, where's the template file? What's the process for this? And you know, I got one of two answers. And, you know, answer one was just kind of throwing your hands up in the air and like, you know, shoulder shrug. Answer two was that of the four people I asked, everyone had a different answer. And maybe it was the way they had done it at a previous firm. Maybe it was just kind of something they had come up with, but there wasn't really that sort of consistent voice. And so that was the light bulb moment of, okay, you know, we need to get some processes together to be able to scale because what worked when we were a two person company wasn't going to work as a eight or a nine person company. And so I think the biggest challenge was that at this point too, we'd kind of marked a shift from our internal private work into our external public work where our internal client had been like 80% of our work, I mean, 100%, 80%. And we were crossing a threshold where they were becoming the, the minority of our work. And so we don't have the luxury of being able to walk across that green to ask the question. We actually had to have a conduit for asking questions, for getting information in a series of processes that worked with third party, but that also could work for the rest of the work that we're doing in-house as well. So I think, you know, in that light bulb moment, the light bulb that came on was that how do we generate basically an end product that is consistent. And so whether it's a, a job that I'm working on or that one of the, at the point in time, you know, one of the other eight people in the firm, that it would look like it was a level architecture and interiors project, you know, no matter who we were doing it for, what the project typology was, but that there was kind of a consistent language with a, a consistent set of architectural grammar, if you will, to go behind that. So that was kind of the aha moment. And then I will say there was another moment that arose at the start of the pandemic where you know we were forced to work remotely and so it was not only kind of a test of some of these processes that we had put into place but it was also another aha moment of we need to you know scale these to be able to work remotely we need to be able to work asynchronously we need to engage possibly some contract workers and, and figure out how to make this work again so when we're back in an office which we are now you know, it works just the same as if somebody's working in, in front of a computer at their own home. So I think that was kind of the big realization. Um, you know, there, there's a lot that went on in between then and now. And I know, I know we'll get into that here. Thanks for painting that picture. I know, like, for anyone who may have answered in this survey, like, hey, I'm in the Wild West right now. How did you guys go about figuring out what areas to really start to ramp up some of your processes? Because obviously there's a lot of things that you can start to tackle, but you need to start somewhere. Yes, that's a, that's a great question. And I think, you know, the hardest, one of the hardest things in kind of creating these processes is finding that jumping off point of where to start. Because I know for us, you know, there was so much we wanted to tackle that it was, it was really daunting and, and overwhelming of kind of well, what do we do first? And so one thing that I really kind of hold true how I operate is the 80-20 rule. Um, I think, you know, it's known as the Pareto principle. And it, it, in a, a business sense, it's that 80% of all outputs come from 20% of the inputs. And how I tend to internalize that, and specifically for the creation of processes, it's, you know, what is the 20% that we can do that is going to get us 80% of the results or 80% of the way there? And so that was kind of the first point, is just identifying what are really the critical things that we need. And so 
you can't define what you need if you don't know what that end product was. And so I, I think part of our jumping off point was deciding what is our end product. And I think we all pretty quickly said, well, it starts with the documents that we put out because that's kind of what we're graded upon. That's what our, our owner sees. That's what our contractors use. And so that is the product that we want to kind of put this consistent process into place to create. And, you know, once we identified that, it was, well, we don't have to reimagine everything. There are industry standards that already exist that have worked for, you know, hundreds of years, if not longer. And so if it's something that works, don't reinvent it. So you know, we kind of did a quick dive into AIA contract documents into, you know, various CM softwares for processes that already exist, that are already, you know, very familiarized within our industry that people recognize. And we took everything from there that just worked and said, we don't need to reinvent this. And so already, you know, we were getting towards our 20% of our 80%, if you will. But then there were some pretty glaring needs beyond that. And just kind of as a, a quick overview, it was really our Revit template. We do all of our work out of Revit. So we need to start in the same place if we were trying to end up in the same place. And, and we realized some people were using just a file from an old jobs. We had kind of a, a scatterbrain template file that some people were starting from. And you know, there's some kind of amalgam of all of it that I think we all were working from. And so the first thing was said, all right, let's identify everything that works in our template and create a wish list. And then you know, one by one, we can kind of work together to knock this out. Similarly, our file structure was a little bit all over the place. And so we came up with a, a file structure that in <laughs> when we first rolled it out was like way overcomplicated. And we actually needed to revisit to kind of simplify. And we might still even need to take a, a third pass at that as well. But, you know, it was people didn't know where to look for things. And on different projects, files were housed in different places. And so, again, it's just kind of creating that base lever, level of consistency where, where people know where to look for information. So if they don't know what the answer or the standard or the template or the process is, at least they know where to look. The next step that we took was to create a series of project management tools. And the reason that we did this, and we really feel at level that it's, it's critical that everyone understands how a project works from the start to the end. And even if you're not touching the whole project, that you've got a general sense of where your piece fits in and so that you understand you know, how other people are needing to respond and react to that information. And I think it really serves twofold with our, our development group because really we're just a small part of, you know, their larger process. And so it became really critical for us to identify a list of project management tools just to educate everyone in our office of no matter what you're doing, how it fits into a bigger picture somewhere. And so once we had identified all these big pieces, we kind of needed to come up with a rule guide for it. So we came up with an adventure guide and that's our how-to manual. You know, it's a survival guide for where to look for, for items. It houses all of our processes. And that is a work in progress for us. It's something that gets updated regularly. It's something that really, truly is kind of just in a, a draft form even right now. But it really sets all the ground rules and gives everyone all the information they need. So that as we're looking for these things, you know, there's always something to refer back to. So you don't end up in that, like, throw your hands up in the air you know, or point to someone else type moment, there's a place where someone can go back to to get the information that they need. That's awesome. I guess you started with kind of that like base layer of process, but obviously it's been some time since then. What are some of the big bets that you guys have had as far as continuing to build out this philosophy? Yeah, so the biggest thing was just making sure we had the right people to kind of staff all these positions that we needed and that everyone was bought into, you know, we're, we're spending a lot of our time to 
create all of these things. And it's a lot of non-billable time that we're going to hope to kind of make it up on the back end, if you will. And so it really takes buy-in. And we, we bet on our staff. You know, we bet on ourselves. We bet on a lot of unpaid time to, to kind of get these processes in place. But then we've been able to put it into action and really test it and see how it's working. And the softwares are monograph included is something where we've really been able to test this. And so with our template, it's taken a lot of back to the drawing board type stuff or, you know, oh, hey, this didn't go well on a certain project, so let's reevaluate it. But I think, you know, one of the other areas where we've really been able to bet on your, ourselves and, and kind of take a peek is we've really peeled back the curtain for all of our staff. And, you know, everyone has the opportunity to look at our contracts and the reason that we do this, you know, one, it's part of that kind of project management guide of how how something fits into a process, but it also lets people see the bucket of hours we have to actually do these tasks. And so it really helps hold people accountable, you know, when they know that if our contract on this job, you know, say is for $10,000 just to pick a round number, that means we can't spend an infinite amount of time on it and still be profitable as a company. And so I think it really helps kind of create the buy-in for these tools when we've created these processes, when we've created these tools for people to use, and then they use them and they see that, oh, you know, I hit that bucket of hours that I needed to hit. And that goes all the way back to the contract. And that goes back to you taking a leap of faith in me to kind of take these tools that you've created and try to use them as best as I can. And we've really seen some real gains come out of that. So I think that's a, a really rewarding moment where you can kind of see some of these things you've you put into practice and, you know, see the fruits of your labor. Yeah, there's two things that I think are, are really interesting there, of many interesting things. One thing that we've been hearing today a lot is transparency, and even those who aren't touching every piece of the project to be able to be informed about it in its entirety. Yeah. And then I loved how you said betting non-billable time, unbillable time, you know? In reality, like, building out practice ops takes that kind of bet. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's scary, and a lot of firms, quite frankly, aren't, able, aren't willing to do that. But yeah, thanks for that answer. And I guess a couple things that I, that I wanted to touch on as well, of course, is the technology piece. Mm -hmm. um, what are some ways that you're using software specifically to help make your job easier? And of course, I have a particular interest in, in Monograph, but if you could touch <laughs> yeah. on that, that'd be great. Sure. Well, I mean, there's really kind of three pieces of software that we really use to kind of drive these processes home. And um, one is Asana, one is Monograph. And then there is still kind of one piece of, you know, good old Microsoft Excel that, that we use. And, and we basically use it as, as kind of a calculator. But to kind of explain that process quickly, it's in Asana, we, we've got all of our projects. And that, that's where we've created that sort of project management roadmap. And so it, it's an outline of, you know, how to get from point A to point Z on a, on a project. And it doesn't give you every single step, but it kind of prompts you of all of the questions that you should be asking along the course of a project. So, you know, we don't ever want our project managers to just become these box checking robots. We want everyone to be thinking critically. And so we've kind of given this series of prompts so that, that they're asking these questions to move the project along. Similarly, in Asana, we've grouped our projects together in these portfolios that we can kind of manage, you know, who's overloaded, who's got a lot of work going on, we can run reports, when deliverables are due, that sort of thing. So there's a lot of surface level management just to make things, make sure things are running smoothly, you know, before anything really goes off the rails. And, and if we need to, we take that deeper dive. And so Monograph is where we start to take that deeper dive, where, you know, we, we're looking at utilization rates, we're looking at the, the real-time project health tracking, and it's very nice to see that, that sort of dollar bar go across the screen. Of course, until it goes like way too far, it's, it's not nice to see it then. 
but it lets us kind of take that surface level looking at projects and, and project health and dig deeper when we need to. And so we don't ever want our project managers, our staff to feel like we're looking over their shoulders and that's not what we use it for. We kind of use it as that, you know, hey, this project seems like we're spending more time. Let's take a deeper dive into it, see what happened there. And so, you know, sometimes it might be that one phase was really challenging. One thing we found out really quickly after implementing Monograph is that we consistently blew our, our fee in the schematic design phase. And that's because that's where people want to live. That's the fun phase, you know, where, where owners can kind of design anything, where people can go to Pinterest boards and, you know, put these mood boards together. And so it's this world that people want to spend a whole lot of time in, but that we just couldn't be profitable in. And until we kind of identified that and, you know, shown a light on it, it was something that tripped us up every single project. And so we were able to correct that by putting some of our project management checkpoints into place, but then to also just alter our contracts so that a little extra fee there so we could spend a little time there and, and just know that, you know, we kind of had to shore that up somewhere else. And then, you know, to touch on that Excel piece, there's we've got a very simple calculator that at the start of a project allows us to take kind of what our fee is and break it down by who's going to be on the project and the phases of the project. And it does some quick math to kind of give us a bucket of hours that everyone, you know, in order to be profitable on the project kind of has to use for that phase of the project. And so that's the information that we plug into Monograph to generate, you know, all of our resources to kind of, you know, put some really good data into those bars that are going across our screen there. And then we're able to, to look at that at a glance. And, and it's just really helpful to know where that is and to be able to take that deeper dive to find out, okay, all of these clients are a profitable job. All of these ones are not, you know, we need to do something here. Um, and so that was, that was a game changer for us to, to be able to take this data that we've been collecting for a long time, but then to actually use it to make some informed decisions. Yeah, no, that totally makes sense. And it, it sounds like we're almost at, at that point, we're almost getting outside of practice ops and it's like practice intelligence, like being able yeah. to see trends and make adjustments in real time. Yeah, that's awesome. We have four minutes left. Uh, we'll jump into some Q&A. Edbert asks, do you have any advice on how to implement these changes in an existing organizational structure? It's easy to implement these systems. It is much harder to get adoption to convince staff to actually use them. So how is, how is that for you, I guess, like as you go through implementing these things? Yeah. So, I mean, it's true, right? It's, it's really easy to identify when something's broken, but then, to, you know, to, to kind of keep something healthy and live in it is, is really difficult. And so I think it was kind of twofold for us. And one was that a lot of this is habit forming. And so you have to, one, you probably have to say something about seven times, you know, for it to sink in, for someone to actually hear it. And then once they've heard it, you know, you have to be really consistent with how these things operate and you have to you have to do it day in and day out so that it becomes kind of habit and second nature so where you're not even thinking about it anymore. And so doing that, it takes a lot of discipline and it takes a lot of commitment. And, you know, we have a, a leadership team that was really committed to making sure that we were doing this and, you know, everything from logging our time, which everybody hates to do, and, and it just takes a piece of time. But it, it's something that in order to get real data out of, we have to make that commitment to do it. And so Part of that is having the right people who are going to buy into this, you know, all these processes you're putting into place. And then part of it is having leadership kind of lead by example. The other piece of it is making sure that you celebrate your results and that if and when you run across kind of these failures, that you use it as a learning opportunity. And so I think, you know, nothing creates that buy-in more than when you've outlined a process, you say it's going to do something and then it actually does it. And then, it, you know, that thing is celebrated. So 
we made sure to kind of celebrate all of our project successes. And along the way, there were a lot of stumbles and, you know, there were a lot of processes that were like 80% baked, but we didn't quite have everything in place and, and it fell short. And so, you know, we said, well, well what was that last 20% that would have gotten us there? And so being able to kind of have those sort of honest conversations and, and, and creating a, a safe environment where it's okay to fail, as long as you're not making the same mistakes over and over again, those really helped us generate buy-in. And I'll also say that not everyone is going to be along for the ride. We, we did have some staff turnover along the way. I think it's kind of an unfortunate piece of the growing process. And it's going to speak to who you have on staff, who is interested in being part of that ride. But I think the ones that see it through from beginning to end and kind of see the changes that happens, you know, you create this sort of buy-in that, that's really impactful. Yeah, I think kind of what Adam, what you're we're painting is a little bit more of, it's not necessarily just implementing all these processes and workflows, but it's like, it's a culture shift that really needs to happen, kind of starting from the leadership and working on its way down. Hey, it's Sylvia from Monograph. Thank you so much for joining us here. At Monograph, we're building the number one practice operations platform for small to mid-sized architecture firms. Monograph is designed for architects by architects. Over 450 practices are using Monograph today to run the business side of architecture. You can start a free trial or sign up for a demo today at monograph.com. Find out what a practice operations platform like Monograph can do for your firm. Get started at monograph.com. Talk to you soon.